forever. Dog. Just between us. Just between us. Hello. I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I like to ride my bike. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and I'm very late to pick up my meds. And Rite Aid is calling and calling, and I I didn't do it. (laughs) (laughs) How's the testosterone going? Well, what do you think? Do I look different? I think so. I do? I think so. Melissa's nodding as well. I put in an email. I don't think you saw it, though. You put an email that I look different? Mm -hmm. And the video that I sent for this week's promo, you can tell. Yeah. (gasps) That's very exciting. I feel like I kind of notice it, but I and I like it, but I feel like maybe it's not enough. But then I took a picture of my haircut yesterday and this person I'm dating was like, how could you not notice? There's it's like different. My mustache is coming in, which is nice. Do you feel any like mental changes in terms of like higher sex drive and all that stuff? Yes, I do. I think, well, it's hard because there's a lot of stereotypes about testosterone. So I'm reticent to like talk about experiencing any of them because I don't want to feed into this narrative of like what transmasculine people are like. Um, I do think I'm dumber. (laughs) What? Like in this very subtle way where I'm like, uh, my like thoughts are more like, but like I don't have <laughs> I feel a level of compassion for for men that I didn't maybe have before where I'm like, oh, no, like the brain has simplified in some ways, which I don't know. I don't want to say that as a stereotype. I know that that is a stereotype, but I feel a little bit like horny dumb. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's interesting because Mal, you know, went through the same thing. Like, did they have similar experience? Like, have you been comparing notes of what it's like to go on and the tr- and getting used to it all? Uh, we've compared only in a in the way of I'm wondering about like the timeline for my voice because I, it's you know we do this podcast, so I gotta imagine it's going to be a real weird experiment in six months from now, me tuning in, me, like someone tuning in, let's say they they haven't checked up on us since BuzzFeed. And they're like, why does Gabby have a cold? I like posted something on TikTok, like promoting something. And I was like, hi, it's me, Gabby Dunn from BuzzFeed. I have a mustache now. We don't have time to unpack that. Like, I was like, if you haven't been keeping up, Google it. But also Mal's facial hair comes in around their neck and their upper cheeks and they don't have a mustache. And mine has been exclusively mustache. So it's kind of fun to sort of be like, what? How does this show up in each person, you know? And Mm -hmm. it's wildly different for each person. It's so different. Like people notice certain things first. Like Mal was like, sometimes you start to smell different. Like you start to have like a different pheromone, but that hasn't happened to me, Mal says. Like it's like all these kind of individual things that are like so individualized with like your body's physiology. So there's a lot that I do have and don't have compared to other people. And then you compare... Like, I feel mixed about people posting their before and afters, like trans people. And you can do whatever you want. But to me, it just makes me feel compare, makes me compare. And then it makes me sad. (laughs) Because you're not like seeing as much change in yourself as you want to be or 
Why do you mean? Yes, but I think also you start to nitpick. Like I got headshots done, like really nice. Like I had this photographer do really nice pictures of me because I need new photos where I, I don't have flaming red locks of hair. And I wanted to capture the mustache a bit. And I was wearing suits. And it was kind of funny because the photographer was like a cis guy, cis straight guy, maybe, maybe queer. I don't know. But he had a girlfriend, a wife. Uh, I don't want to assume. But he I was like, what, what are some poses I can do that are masculine? And he was like, you know, I don't sit around like he was sort of fascinated. He was like, I don't sit around all day wondering how I stand or how I move. So it's fun to try to explain that to you and like get you to sort of do do that. You know, like I was like, am I standing the right way? Am I doing it? And he was like, I've never had to give boy lessons before, <laughs> but I nitpick, right? Like I not to trigger anyone, but I look at the pictures in the suit and I go, you can tell it's like a, there's like a, a figure. The figure is that of a woman. And I'm like, oh man, like I'm like feeling myself in this suit. And then I like kind of see like a glimpse of it kind of pushing in a little in the hip area. And I'm like devastated. <laughs> I'm like, no, it doesn't look how I want it to look. So then I just pick the photos that don't show that. But, you know, and then it's kind of, you see like someone who's been on T for like five, like a person I'm dating has been on T for five years. And so there is like that comparison, you know, and Mal's been three years and there's like a comparison definitely. So I don't know. It's hard. It's hard not to, it's hard to have other people close to you or other, like there's good support, but it's also you compare yourself to them. Yeah. So I don't know, but that's, I guess what humans do. Yeah. You know, I think sometimes it's like sucks, but also like everyone probably has thoughts like that. Maybe not as as tied to gender, but like it is nitpicking. Yeah. Even cis women, you know, I think I think maybe there's some aspect of like comparing to everybody. Like I think even cis people like they see their friend and they're like, oh, my friend is so hot. Like, why don't I look like that? You know? Right. So it's like kind of a thing, but it's just an added thing of being like, I want to change this. But then mm. is that internalized transphobia? Bam. Is it internalized misogyny? We don't know. We don't. We can't unpack <laughs> everything. <laughs> but we sure do try on this show. I want to say thank you for asking. And thank you to both of you for saying that. That's very nice. Yes, this is Just Between Us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice. Ridiculous games. And brutal honesty. And truly, truly, like to both of you, thank you for for having any interest. It's nice. And for saying that I look different. I think I do, but I don't know. I went to a barber shop for the first time, like a true like barber shop, not like a queer salon. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you, that haircut took 20 minutes and it cost $30. Yeah. <laughs> Being a feminine woman is a scam. Well, it's very expensive. It's, a, it's a, I think, a scam. And I'm here to expose that. We have got an excellent episode for everyone this week. We're going to be asking Demi Burnett some tough questions about her autism diagnosis and a lot of mental health stuff, which was really, really cool. And later we're going to be talking about what guests we have on this show and what it's like to have guests and how much we should push back on our guests and just a complicated discussion about being podcast hosts that we hope is still intriguing to the listeners. It is because a lot of you guys had thoughts. <laughs> But first, we have got to answer a listener's question. And you know what that means. Hit it! International question! International question! International question! Anonymous, California. Anonymous. <laughs> Hello, Gabby and Allison. 
First of all, I've been following you since I was in middle school, and it has been a joy to grow up with you. Like Gabby, I also transitioned, and it's been really cool to listen to Gabby's journey. Thanks, both of you, for your vulnerability and humor over the years. Anyway, to the question. TDLR, what do I do if I think I might be wrong for my partner, even though I love them? How do I deal with a privilege gap in my relationship? I, he, him, have been dating my partner, they, them, for seven months, and I love them deeply. Our relationship has been very healing for me since it is the first gay and gender-affirming relationship that I've been in, and my last relationship was so toxic. We are both about to graduate college and have been discussing moving together. We communicate pretty well and generally have a good relationship, but there are some challenges that worry me. We have a large privilege gap when it comes to money. I have some familial wealth, and they do not. I also have a bigger support system than them. There are a few other areas, but I don't want to get too specific and compromise my anonymity. Anyways, this has caused them some difficult situations where they find it hard to relate to me. I love them a lot, and I try to help in the ways that I can, offering emotional support and covering purchases, but I can't bridge this gap. I feel like things keep coming up when I accidentally hurt them or bring up trauma, not because I have intentionally caused, but because I am highlighting the differences in our lives. Mm. They once said in a moment of frustration that I have everything handed to me while they have to work very hard for everything in their life, and this causes them a lot of sadness. They later apologized for the wording of that statement, but I feel like what they said is true. I don't know how or if I can stop this from happening, and I worry that our relationship is just putting them through more harm. I think they have unhealed Mm. trauma that I keep triggering. I know they want therapy, but it is expensive and hard to access. I love them a lot, and I think they are the most wonderful person, and I am scared that maybe they would be better off with someone who understood them better. Aside from trying to talk through things with them, which I've been trying to do but doesn't really seem to resolve anything, I don't know what to do. Any advice is appreciated. So I think the heart of this question is, should you break up with someone when you feel you're not the right person for them, but you can't make that decision for them. Does that make sense? Yes. It's really hard, (laughs) you know, and it's also really hard because you guys are really young and they haven't had a chance to probably process and work through a lot of stuff, both through their age and the fact that they don't seem to have access to therapy. And it's really tricky. I kind of was hoping just to read this and then have you figure out the answer, Gabby, (laughs) because I don't know it. So I was in a relationship when I lived in New York with someone who is much older than me, shock of all shocks. And we would fight and we just never saw eye to eye on anything. And I would constantly say, you just don't like me. Like, you just don't want to be with me. And he would say, no, 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 that's not true. And I'd be like, I don't think, like, I loved him. I was obsessed with him. But I was like, I don't think I'm the right person for you because you're constantly frustrated with me. And he'd be like, that's not true. That's not true. The relationship ended. And to me, reflecting on it, I'm like, I constantly gave him outs where I was like, it seems like you don't like how I am. And he would push back on that. And there was only so much that I could control. Like I could have broken up with him, but I took his word. But the evidence day to day in our behavior did not match his word. And I knew that I was bugging him a lot, bothering him a lot, causing him to not necessarily, this is not the same as like triggering harm, but like he didn't like the way I was and it didn't fit in with his lifestyle or his wants. So now I'm thinking like, should I have ended it and just been like, I'm not the right person for you? Or how many times can you be like, I just think maybe this, the problem here, the core problem here is not what we're discussing. It's that we are not compatible. And 
ultimately he ended it with me. And like, what was that just in the end up to him? You know, even though we were together for probably like a year, was that in the end just up to him to decide if I was compatible with him or not? And how how long should I let that go on? You know, Yeah, I'm wondering if, you know, the framework of this email is like, should I break up with them for them? Right. And I wonder if it will be more helpful to think, is this the right relationship for me? Mm-hmm. Because I can't imagine that it feels good just your mere existence to be triggering to your partner, right? That can't be something that feels good for you. I also come from a privileged background and it is something that I'm very aware of. And it's also something that you were born into, right? And so there is a way where you can move through the world as someone with privilege, where you don't acknowledge it, where you say things like, oh, well, you just work hard and then you'll, you know, like, or there's a way of like, you know, Accepting that you have massive privilege, knowing that, trying not to abuse it, trying to use it as a to help people when you can. But if you're dating somebody who just can't get past something that is just fundamentally true about you and your background, that can be really hard and it can make you feel really bad about yourself. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if it will be more helpful for you to think about it through the lens of, They are autonomous. They get to decide if they want to be with me and if this relationship is good for them because I don't want to infantilize them in any way and Mm -hmm. it is their decision. But I also get to have a decision here. And maybe this isn't right for me because I end up feeling bad about myself all of the time. Mm -hmm. And I end up feeling like I have to walk on eggshells all of the time and that I have to apologize for having a support system when having a support system is a really wonderful thing. And and it doesn't mean that you should throw it in their face that you have this support mm-hmm. system, but it can make it where you end up feeling yucky about this thing in your life that is just a wonderful thing that you have, you know? So maybe a reframe of, of the way that you're thinking about this relationship and what you should do might be more helpful. And I think also having a blatant conversation with them where, where you're saying, look, I'm, I'm thinking these things. I'm wondering if this is the right match because I often feel like I am causing you harm. And that makes and one, I don't want to cause you harm because I love mm-hmm. you and I don't want to cause any probably you don't want to cause anybody harm. But two, it also makes me feel yucky that I'm constantly harming this person who I love so right. much. Right. I mean, I'm definitely guilty of and I want to bring up a mindset change for you, too. I'm definitely guilty of saying exactly what you said to people for sure. Ver- verbatim almost. Which part? Can you just clarify? I've had to work for everything and you've had to work for nothing. And saying Mm -hmm. sort of harsh things about partners of mine who've come from money. And my partner right now has a really great support system and has, it's hard for me to be like the parents are rich because to me, people seem rich that maybe aren't. So I like am, you know, it's it's a subjective word, but they have support though. And as a partner, I have to reframe it as not as we're adversaries, not as they have this and I don't, but rather we are a partnership. And how lucky is it that we have this? It needs to be something together that is not making them your enemy, but making it nice for you guys together as a partnership. Like I started crying because we were at dinner with Mal's parents and Mal's dad very casually was like, well, if you ever can't make your mortgage one month, like we'd cover it. And I was like, what? And they were like, yeah, like we wouldn't let you lose your house. And I started crying because I was like, oh, my God, like I'm part of this family. Like I'm taking care of like they see me as 
a, what am I, not really a son-in-law, but like a, you know, a child-in-law, whatever. And so it's not framing it. So maybe they, you can work with them to not frame it as like, we are against each other and we're different, but rather, wow, we're a family and we get to like be part of this family. I also think keeping in mind that life is long and you are just leaving college. And so if it makes sense to to separate for right now, for them to sort of work on whatever they need to work on to get to, you know, like people just change so much in their early 20s. So if you're already dealing with a relationship where there is a lot of friction, where there is seems to be a lot of hurt and and triggering happening, allowing yourself to say, I don't need to force this right now. I don't need to make this work at all costs because sometimes we do need to go out on our own. We do need to live a bit more life. We do need to have some more experiences and you can totally keep in touch during that time or check in six months later or, you know, like life is messy. And so if right now staying together feels like so much work at your age, it might be beneficial to just take a pause and take a breath. And and honestly, some time apart make might make them come to some of these conclusions that Gabby was talking about on their mm-hmm. own. Took me a long time. I'm 34. Took me forever to figure that out. Yeah. Well, we hope that that helps. If you want to submit your international question, you can send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Up next, we've got an exciting interview with our highly esteemed guest, Demi Burnett. Stay tuned. Just between us, it's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting, Tough Questions. This week on the show, our guest is Demi Burnett, an influencer model and possibly one of the most divisive characters in Bachelor Nation history. She's the host of the Demi Goddess podcast. From growing up in Texas to having the very first ever queer storyline on Bachelor Nation, woo! Demi's life has been one wild ride. Diagnosed with autism at 27 and recently sober, Demi is committed to breaking down stereotypes. Hello! Hi! Wow, that sounds like so much. (laughs) (laughs) That was the bio that was sent in. I just added that you're a host of a podcast. I feel like that's relevant to podcast listeners. That's like the most relevant thing that should be in there. Exactly! (laughs) Amazing. That's the story of my life. (laughs) Well, we're so excited to have you. Gabby and I have watched you on our TV for years, and it has just been so exciting to sort of follow your journey. And I think what we'd really love to talk to you about is now all of this work that you're kind of doing in the mental health space and sort of your journey to getting the autism diagnosis. Well, I mean, I love talking about it, so I'm excited. What made you realize that you maybe needed to seek professional help when it came to your mental health? And what did that look like for you? Oh, it was like basically coming to terms with the fact that I had been running from my mental health for so long. Like I remember being suicidal for the first time at like the age of 12. Like it had been a long journey that I had always asked for help with. And I never got any help, no matter how much I begged for help, begged for help because of like this mentality. There's nothing wrong with you. You don't need any kind of medication. You don't need any kind of help. If you go to therapy, you're crazy, like, you know, stuff like that. So, or the only kind of help that I was offered was through a Christian psychologist. And I'm like, well, 
isn't that convenient? Isn't that convenient <laughs> that a Christian psychologist would completely go against every single thing that I've just discovered about myself, like about evolution and everything, you know, like the whole big picture. Anyway, so I had never really got help. I got, when I went to college, I got um, diagnosed with ADHD. So that was helpful. But again, it was from a Christian psychologist and <laughs> she, I don't know, she made me feel uncomfortable about the whole thing. All of it was just uncomfortable. So then I think that I was afraid that I had a mental health disorder that um, I was going to be like so ashamed of and like uh, was going to taint me as in like, Mm. oh, Demi, she's a narcissist. She's got narcissistic personality or she's a sociopath. Like I thought it was going to be just something that was like the end of the world. And like, I was just going to be the worst, like confirmed Demi sucks officially. Like, you know, like a medical professional said she sucks. And then I just kind of started reading about mental health. And, uh, well, after I got sober, after I got sober, I started remembering because what I did, I kind of jumped ahead. What I did was I started drinking a lot. A lot of it was because I was so nervous about being on TV and being on the show. So like that helped at first. And then it just kind of became a crutch all the time of like self-medicating the anxiety that I always had. So once I stopped drinking, which I just decided one day I was done. Um, I got so sick and whatever, uh, went to the hospital, yada, yada. And then it took months for me to recover from that, which was weird to me. Cause I thought like, Oh my gosh, like I'm going to just stop drinking in like maybe a week or two and then I'll be okay. Like, no, it took months and months. And like with those months, the first few months were kind of foggy. And then all of a sudden it was like clarity. And then I remembered all of like the struggles I'd had with my mental health. But like while I was drinking, I was still struggling with my mental health. But it was more of a like, I'm sobbing and I don't know why. Like I'm just drunk. I'm just always drunk. That's why I'm so sad. But then once I had the clarity, I was like, oh my gosh, I remember thinking that I was autistic in college. Because I remember I got ADHD I got that. And then I remember I was like, furthermore, after that, I was like, oh my gosh, I think I'm autistic. And um, I told the people around me in my life, like my loved ones and stuff. And they were all like, no, you're not. No, you're not. That's a joke. And I was like, okay. So they apparently shame me so much about it because I like totally forgot about it for eight years. And then I remembered, oh my God, oh my God. It was like all these crazy epiphanies and like these uh, internal explosions of like, ah, this is my truth. Like, this is it. This is it. This is it. This is what you've been searching for with like in your mental health, whenever you're wanting help, you're wanting help, you're wanting someone to relate to. I live like a very secret. Uh, My big secret is like, Mm -hmm. I'm like, not, I'm always by myself. Like I don't hang out with a lot of people like, you know, all of my weird, strange things. Like I'm just not, I don't do things the same way as everyone else. And so but that's like my secret. And I like I'm very good at convincing everyone that I am just as normal and I belong as they do. So I started realizing all of this. And then I also like, I had gotten into an argument with a friend and I was like, why does this always happen to me? Why does this always happen that I am so misunderstood by my friends? Like in that moment, all I was trying to do was repair the friendship, repair the fight, like stop everything from happening. And somehow I made it a million times worse. And it was like, my actions and my heart's intent weren't lining up. And like that disconnect was so, it was clear to me because I was sober. So I was like, oh my gosh, like what the heck is wrong with me? Like, why am I doing that? And so then I just started like being really like struggling, like uh, 
again, I started looking into these personality disorders. And like the biggest takeaway from this also is that there's nothing wrong with having personality disorders if you do have them. Right. Um, it's it's mental illnesses and we treat them. How are people supposed to get help for those if we ostracize them? Like literally, if someone right. is struggling with that, you should want to help them. You should be like, oh my gosh, how can I help? Like, what can I do to help you with that? Because you don't understand what it's like. I mean, I don't understand what it's like, but I know what it's like to feel like you have one and feel the shame. There's nothing to be ashamed of. It's not your fault. So somebody, oh, this is what happened. Somebody on the internet, somebody on the internet said, I think she's autistic. And I was like, so do I. (laughs) mm -hmm, They commented that. So then I was like, okay, that makes me feel the first little bit of validation that I've ever felt. I, cause I wasn't going to tell anybody. I was like, mm, I remember what happened last time I was shut down. I was embarrassed about it. I was rejected for it. So I started looking into it more and more. And this is like completely on my own. I'm like by myself and I'm on Google, I'm researching. So I figure out all this stuff, right? I'm like connecting all these dots. I'm like, oh my God. I like call someone in my family. I'm like, hey, I think I'm autistic. And they're like, so do I. And I'm like, oh my God, we are autistic. It's in our family. Oh my God. Oh my God. Freak it out. Then I call my bestie and I'm like, oh my God, dude, I'm autistic, blah, blah. And she was like, have you been watching too much TikTok? And I was like, what are you talking about? I don't watch TikTok. What are you talking about? And she was like, there's like this whole phenomenon of autistic girls on TikTok. And I was like, shut up shut up. They're realizing it on TikTok while I'm realizing it in my own world over here on the internet. Like we're both realizing the same things at the same timeline. Like it's wild. And like, I never once got on TikTok. So it's like all the people who are saying, oh, this is a TikTok phenomenon. That's why everyone's doing it. Blah, blah. I literally never got on TikTok. Not one time did I see anything about autism on TikTok. So Oh, I was going to like say, because uh, you mentioned that it's a lot of women on TikTok. I was wondering, I think there's a journey for like women and AFAB people where their symptoms show up differently. So people say, oh, this is like, this isn't autism. This is fake. This isn't real. Yeah. Can you talk about how that how that manifests and how that sometimes blocks women from getting diagnosed? The biggest struggle for me in all of this and my mental health journey in general was struggling to be believed. And Mm -hmm. for me, it's the most bizarre thing ever because I don't lie. Like it's one of my like number one things. It's like, I don't lie. Lying makes me sick. I can't do it. The guilt. It's like, I know someone who used to lie all the time growing up. So like, I was always like, I'm not going to lie because they're they're the one that lies. They lie, not me. (laughs) Are you describing Gabby and my dynamic? (laughs) (laughs) Really? Who's the liar? Yes. I okay. I knew it was Gabby. I like I knew it was Gabby. I like to okay. I like to exaggerate because I like to make my stories. Hey, very there's exciting. nothing wrong with it. That's also another thing I learned on my mental health journey is that there's nothing wrong with lying because a lot of the time lying is uh social manipulation for survival. Right. So like you exaggerate your story maybe to like be more accepted, like make the story sound better so people will accept you more um subconsciously. Mm-hmm. But that's not mm-hmm. not to say that's true or not. I don't know. No, it's probably true. I do it. Yeah, it's I think for a lot of autistic people, it's part of masking is to sort of be like, well, if I mirror, if I, you know, try to fit in, which again is like for women hard because it's socially that is kind of what a lot of people do. So that are women or AFAB people. So that would if you say that when you're getting diagnosed with autism, people are like, that's not an autistic thing for you. That's just like what women do or something, you know, it like causes a hindrance. Yeah, there's so many (laughs) issues with women 
not being believed. And like the fact that that is a thing is crazy to me that we're just not believed and that someone who has always been like, you know, to the people who didn't believe me, like loyal, love being like, okay, maybe bratty or rude, but like never a liar, never one to make something up out of my ass, never one to pull a fucking, oh, I have a disability for attention. Like I've never, ever, ever like, but it's, I remember I reflect back on my life and I recall being in the first grade and breaking my arm. And my brother and I were coming back from the park because my arm was broken. And he like ran way ahead of me to go tell the parents. And I'm coming around the corner and all I hear is, no, it's not. Her arm's not broken. And I'm literally, my arm snapped, both bones snapped in half. And they were like, oh my gosh, my dad fainted. I was like, why would you guys think we'd be lying about that? Like, why do do adults treat children with bad intentions? And why do we treat women like they are just pitiful attention whores? Like what? Like we are just so pathetic all the time. It's interesting. The people who know modern research, thank God for those neuropsychologists and whatnot. I mean, I had, oh, that's the other thing. I had two evaluations. I had, okay. So (laughs) I, I figured out I was autistic. I texted my primary care physician and I said, hey, I'm autistic. I think I really need to see, I need an evaluation. I don't know what to do. I need something. He didn't respond to me for a while. <laughs> like, I don't know how long and it was, like a day, a two days maybe. And I was like, I texted him again. Hey, I'm serious. I texted the nurse practitioner. I was like, guys, give me an evaluation now. I'm impatient. So then he recommends me. He's like, okay, here's a neuropsychologist. He's in New York, but he does Zoom, blah, blah, blah. This motherfucker has the same last name as him. I was like, hmm, so what? Is this your cousin? You recommended me to your cousin? What? <laughs> So I, I set up this evaluation with this man. The man answers the call, spitting image of my primary care physician. I was like, is it you? I was so weirded out. And I was like, whatever. So then I remember him just like, I guess passive aggressively, maybe condescendingly, just like having like a smirk on his face. Just like the whole time I was explaining to him, like, oh, I think I'm autistic. And him just being like, as if, like this girl really like this chick, like, oh my God. It was just a, it was a look. So I guess I can't assume what he was saying, but, mm-hmm. or thinking. So I go through this evaluation and it's the old school evaluation. I'm looking at the frog pictures, the frog pictures. And the most mind blowing part of it. Okay. So this right here is why um the old school autism evaluations fail us. So he um is telling me, so the thing about this test, he's like, okay, I'm going to show you a series of pictures. Just tell me what's going on in the pictures and what you think the story is or whatever. So in my mind, I look at the picture and I'm like, it's a fucking frog and on a lily pad. I don't, I don't know. But to him, he just told me like, I literally get up and I am performing the fucking book for him. I am giving, I'm giving him whatever I think he wants to hear. Right. So I'm like, there's a frog on a lily pad and uh, maybe the gravity is turned off on the earth for a temporary amount of time. And the lily pad, like, so (laughs) So now he's thinking I'm like a creative thinker. And I'm like, bro, that was survival mode. I literally, my adrenaline was pumping the whole time. I was using social communication manipulation to get through that for you, to tell you what you wanted to hear. I was masking the whole time. But like in the moment, I didn't know that. But look, reflecting mm-hmm. back, I can see exactly what happened. But that's what he, he doesn't, he didn't even recognize that where someone like me, who's not a professional can recognize that now and others, I can recognize, I, you know what I mean? That is why that test doesn't work and why if you don't know modern research, you wouldn't even be able to see that you would just, oh, this person does not have autism. Look at them. They're telling me the story very elaborately and coming up with details about it. They're even trying to make a story for it whenever I'm really in survival mode, just trying to tell him what he wants to hear so I can feel safe. Mm -hmm. So the man uh, diagnoses me with 
BPD, by, uh, borderline personality disorder, social communication disorder, which is basically autism. <laughs> it's autism without repetition and routine. And the repetition and routine aspect of my autism is um, demand avoidance. But at the time, again, I didn't know all of that. What's demand avoidance? Oh, my God. What's demand avoidance? <laughs> Pathological demand avoidance? Yeah, what is it? Oh, it's a pathological demand avoidance is an autistic profile. So it's like the way autism presents through me. So you know how it's like, how the fuck is she autistic? She's so sociable. She's so like does not seem autistic, whatever, like traditional autism is because I have a PDA profile. PDAers are charming, charming, charming. We use social manipulation to get through. So like lying and um, what I don't lie though, what I do is clownery. So I make everything into a, a funny joke. Like if um, I perceive a threat, so PDAers, another name instead of pathological demand avoidance, you can think of it as pervasive drive for autonomy. Autonomy is freedom from external control. So I don't like being told what to do, quote unquote, but it's more than that. It's that it's my brain perceives that as a threat for my life. Mm -hmm. So um, how I always just have to say something, how I'm argumentative, just the way that I am and how it's the Demi show, it's my way or the highway. That's because of this profile, because if it's not my way, I panic. And I, I didn't know it. Like, I didn't realize what was going on before. But now that I know, I understand all of my behavior ever. It's so cool. Does it have to do with rejection sensitivity? So this is the other thing about it is that PDA looks a lot like trauma. So with like therapy and stuff, like I've heard some people tell me that are PDA extraordinaires and professionals that um, therapists that specialize in trauma are helpful because it is a trauma response looks similar. The difference though with PDA is that the way that it's a profile in and of itself is that there's a few aspects of it. So whenever your external actions and your internal desires are not adding up. So for example, there's an ele a, a child, there's an electric fence. You tell the kid, don't touch the electric fence. Kid goes over, grabs it immediately, stops and goes, I don't know why I did that. Mm -hmm. That kid's brain made him do it, but his consciousness didn't want to, but his brain felt the safety of that balance, that loss of autonomy, the external control, don't touch that fence. It's brain perceived that as a fight or flight moment. And so it sometimes counterintuitively, you will do the opposite of what you're told. Your brain will, but it's out of your control and it's not what you're trying to do at all. You do the opposite. It's so frustrating. Mm -hmm. And then also going into role play to comply. That's the thing about a PDA profile that's really sets it apart from just like a trauma, a trauma response. There's probably a lot more too. But uh, for example, whenever I was a kid, my demand avoidance, like I didn't want to take a bath or shower or anything. So my granny to get me to take a bath, I, and it's crazy because she didn't know, no one knew about PDA or um, me being autistic or anything. But just by her instincts as a grandmother, she would play game, a role play game with me. And she would be like, Queen Demi, um, the tub is ready and blah, blah, blah. And so she'd, <laughs> she'd act like the servant and I'd be the queen. And that's how we would, I uh, would role play to comply. Uh, it's so interesting. Just like even on The Bachelor, whenever I'm having like a, an internal panic moment and I'm like, I don't feel confident. I don't know what to do, what to say. I'm going to look stupid, whatever. I literally think of whatever celebrity or TV show character that I admire, that I like there, I'm intrigued by or something. And I act like them. And that's how I get mm -hmm. through it. And I can get through it like calmly too. I'm not like freaking out the whole time. I'm like, oh no, like I'm Kourtney Kardashian today. It's fine. <laughs> 
that environment is particularly hard on people with any sort of neurodivergence. And that came up last season too with ADHD on The Bachelor. But like when you got to that environment, were you like immediately like, oh no, this is not what I, <laughs> this is not. Because you're now navigating this in public and you're also navigating it in a world that you don't have control over. Well, that was three years ago. So like that's kind of, I was drinking. I was excited. I had never been to LA I was on a high and also it was the first time in my life where um, my like true autistic self was celebrated. My social, like my social failures, inadequacies or whatever, like whenever, you know, I missed the mark with someone, production loved it. (laughs) This is wild. You know, but I didn't know that was going on. So like, they were like, yes, Demi, more Demi, more of that. Just do you, do whatever you would do. And so I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm being loved and accepted. Like these people like me, I feel so validated. Well, meanwhile, I'm really pissing off everyone and not even realizing it whatsoever because I'm just production. I know that they're the ones in charge of the show. So like, to me, I'm like, they're my authority Mm -hmm. and um, my RSD self and my people pleaser self just needed to make sure that I was good with the authority, the adult. And they mm-hmm. were like, uh, they thrilled by me. So I was like, oh my gosh, I felt differently about myself than I ever had of like, I'm not annoying. I'm not the worst. Like not everyone hates me. Like, I don't think everyone hates me, but I, people are like, oh my gosh, everyone likes you, Demi, blah, blah. And I'm like, First of all, shut up about how <laughs> like how I should feel about how people feel about me. That's my decision to make. That you don't live you don't live in my shoes. People like me, yeah, for like this for a little bit of time, and then when they're right. with me long enough, that's when things that start switching up quick. And I don't blame them because I understand what I'm doing. I can I have the awareness now, and I know my brain. So like I look back, I'm like, oh shit, I must have drove a lot of people crazy. But I don't count that as like a negative strike against me. I'm just like, oh, poor thing. I just misunderstood. People just didn't get you. It's okay. So you had that first, you know, evaluation. You got misdiagnosed. Um, and then what happened? You decided you didn't trust it. You went to find another professional. I got that. And I literally was like, I want to kill myself again. I want to fucking die. I'm so fucking miserable. Like, how could this be? He literally just told me like my biggest fear, basically, that I'm, I'm crazy. Like I made it all up in my head. Like I... I was wrong and I didn't know what I was talking about and I was devastated. And so then I just immediately Googled woman neuropsychologist near me and I just booked the first one I found. And um, once I, I I didn't talk to her for a couple of weeks. And then when I did the first conversation, she, I mean, the first sentence immediately is just validation, validation, validation. So I was like, oh my God, I was like, uh, she changed my life, you know, honestly, without even having to say much at all. Like, I would just be saying to her all of my craziest quote unquote thoughts. And she would just be like, yep, yep. And like validating me. I'm like, yeah, you're exactly right that these men are being misogynistic, sexist, discriminatory against women and minorities in the mental health care system. And they are choosing not to diagnose women because there's something wrong with them. And they believe in the stigma and the stereotype. And that is the problem. Uh, Because I understand why, too, these, uh, like, the guy did misdiagnose me. He has a lack of information. There was no one who came to him and was like, hey, update on the uh, psychology, everything that you learned, there's an update to it. We figured out more. You need to take this course or whatever. I don't know how they would go about it. Um, Obviously, I don't think I know the best way. So I don't blame him. I did send him an email. (laughs) I sent him an email. (laughs) 
And I was just telling him, hey, just so you know, for the future reference, like I'm not trying to be a smart ass. Genuinely, I'm not. I told him about PDA and like, because it makes sense now instead of this. I mean, after I got diagnosed, I was like, okay, how am I autistic? I still don't get it. I know I'm autistic, Mm. but I don't, I don't get like all of it. I don't fully Mm -hmm. have my head wrapped around it. Whenever you first like autism, if you don't get it at all at first. Well, I didn't. I mean, a late diagnosis, Mm -hmm. a late figuring out you have it, like the stigma and stereotype you grow up around like it. So I still didn't get it. And I was like, "Mm, I need, I need to, I need to understand it. I can't go around talking about it until I get it. So then I figured out about PDA and then everything was just explosions of fireworks connections. Like, yes, 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 yes. A euphoric of, oh my gosh, I figured it out. I figured it all Mm -hmm. out down to like family, like my whole family trauma cycle of it. Like it's just embedded in my genetics. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. And we're back. Obviously, getting the diagnosis means that your self-concept changed, right? And so were you still holding on to some stigma about having a mental health diagnosis? Or was it more just like clarifying and a relief? Or was it kind of a mix of both? I did not care at all what people were going to think about it. I didn't care at all about being part of us going against the stigma stereotype, whatever. Honestly, all I thought about after I got diagnosed, because I got I got diagnosed with autism and PTSD, which I didn't even know I was going in there for. And which is funny because it's like PTSD, every like autistic, late diagnosed autistic person has PTSD and it's just so fucking <laughs> casual. <laughs> We're just all casually so fucking traumatized. But what I wanted to do immediately was provide people who were in my shoes that I was just in, uh, be a person who they could look to and be like, okay, that this person is like validate, like see, have resources that they could share with people, like have at least a profile that they could be like, yeah, I think I'm autistic. Someone makes them feel stupid. They're like, well, look, Demi is, look at her. She doesn't, Mm. she doesn't seem autistic and she is. I, I immediately wanted to provide that because I was desperately searching for it. I was searching for any anyone who would uh, anything that would validate me that would replicate my inner feelings and thoughts, my person or my experiences. I was looking for other people's experiences, and that's what helps me the most mm-hmm. as far as internal battles of like self self loathing, self doubting, and all of that. Was reading other experiences and saying, "Look, other people are feeling the same." way this is like oh my gosh oh my gosh no I've never said that thought out loud and they said it exactly like that's eerie Mm -hmm. so I wanted to just start cranking out like hey I'm autistic like who tell everyone so that way it can already just start like breaking the stigma of it like tell the mailman I don't care let everyone you know because then they will remember that whenever they hear maybe later on that oh they hear their niece is autistic and they're like well, I used to think that that probably wouldn't have been possible. But now that I know that that girl was autistic, like, okay, I can believe that, you know, mm-hmm. little, little changes. And like, that's all I can do. Listen, I don't care what they say about me on the internet. They say everything. They've been talking shit about me on the internet since I was like seven. <laughs> I was, I was literally fighting people on the internet at seven being rejected. I was like, why? I'm, you know, what's crazy though. Like I got so rejected on the internet and all these like forums and chat rooms that like under the age of 10 and <laughs> I was so resilient. I never let them get me down. I never cared. I said, okay, well, next room. 
And so how has your life changed since getting this diagnosis? I mean, are you working on having, you know, different skill sets to navigate this? Is it more just like an acceptance model? Are you still in therapy? Like, what does it look like for you now? I mean, it's completely changed my life. The biggest part is understanding myself is I think everyone needs to understand why they do every single thing they do. I think that that is where everyone should start for sure. It's because consequently, you start to understand everyone around you and your anger dissipates. Because yes. you, you can, once you understand, there's nothing to be angry about. It's more compassion. You're just like, oh, damn, like it really wasn't anything about me. It was them. Hurt people, hurt people. That saying is so overused, but like, it's so true. It's yes. so mm-hmm. true. There's no way someone would hurt someone unless they had been hurt before. They, no one just does that. Mm-hmm. So that's cool. That That's one way it's changed. Like the biggest way is just understanding situations and like so much anger, being able to let go of anger, even if, because I still get angry. But I can zoom out of the situation and be like, ah, that's why they did that. I get it. I'm not mad anymore. Yes. The compassion is a huge part of it. Yes. And the compassion for others and yourself, it all goes hand in hand once you just understand your own behavior. So it's, that's the thing about mental health journeys is like, it's all about you. And people love Mm. to talk about themselves, learn about themselves. Like, it's really exciting and fascinating because it's all about yourself. And it seems so selfish at first until you realize the skills that it's given you that you can use with other people and how much you will understand others and see yourself in them. Mm-hmm. So that's the biggest thing to take away from uh, the mental health journey, everyone, is work on, like, understand every little thing you do. I was curious if you figured out different coping mechanisms. Like, I've seen you with the headphones on or if you've, like, figured out, oh, this is how to soothe myself. Um, the headphones help so much and the earplugs wearing them um, whenever I leave my house, it just night and day like anxiety. I think it's because without them, I can just hear every little sub conversation happening. And I'm like trying to like subconsciously eavesdrop and I don't want to. And it's just like, uh, and then I'm whispering because I'm like thinking that everyone else is listening to me too. And it's exhausting. But if I have my headphones on, no one like my volume doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Like, uh, who can hear me? I can't hear anyone. <laughs> so <laughs> that's been great for me. As far as like therapy has been so hard. I've talked to so many different therapists and different professionals because of PDA not being recognized in America. It's been hard to get like the proper support that I need, but I did get support as far as like I hired two girls who helped me with like everything, everything. And they know all about PDA and it's all about accommodation approach of like, uh, just let me win. Like, let me win at home. Let me be annoying. Let I know I'm wrong. I know whatever's going on. And then paradoxically, when I go out there into the world and I have to deal with the people that I don't want to deal with. And like, I have to deal with the authority telling the external control, threatening my sense of self. I can't do anything about it. I've been winning at home all this time. I've been seeing my assistants being great sports about letting me win. I know now how I can let people win and be a good sport about it out there in the real world because I know I can just go home and win so I'll let them win and it won't oh it won't affect my nervous system mm. my nervous system will be able to balance it'll see us as equal you're training again. yourself yeah yeah it's yeah. interesting it's like just so much awareness and I think that a lot of the time people the professionals a lot of them have a lack of information right now so more than like I say like needing to get a therapist and like spend money and doing all this stuff is just to actually do the work yourself as in like know what you're talking about like you can do research on this stuff and 
it, like make sure they're credible sources that you're looking at and don't just read it one time. Like you read a something that clicks with you, read it, search that whole thing again and research a million different pages. Like just keep going, keep going, keep going and diving and diving. Keep reading experiences, get on forums, talk to other people, t- you know, just reach out to whoever you can and just do all of this work on your own. You don't really need a professional um, because it is, uh, well, specifically for PDA, there's no professional who can help you. And they probably would uh, misguide you, uh, not on purpose, but because they don't know better. Well, could you find a therapist who also has autism? So with PDA, it's a different approach than a traditional Mm. autism approach. It's like the most unheard of approach. It's completely counterintuitive. It's accommodation. So whenever your kid does something bad or bad, quote unquote, so say you're supposed to just let your, it sounds bad. You're supposed to let your kid just do whatever. Because what's happening in those moments, so say your kid's sitting on the couch, your kid throws trash on the ground. Your kid says, chips, water, and you start demanding <laughs> stuff at you. Your initial reaction would be to say, like, pick that trash up. And no, I'm not getting you chips or water. You go get it yourself. Like, I'm not, what, I'm not your maid and I am not your chef. Like, whatever. Mm-hmm. So what the child is doing right now is the child's nervous system is in, like, almost activated. So it's testing you. It's leveling. The child doesn't know if it's safe or not. So it's throwing the trash on the ground to see if you're going to try to bring him back down, to see if you're going to threaten his autonomy. Does that make sense? To see your reaction, to know if they're truly safe. Yeah. To know if they're... So with me, what happens is that whenever I get really upset, now I probably wouldn't do it. I haven't been upset. But like uh, whenever I get really upset with someone, I will say things that I would never say. And it's like the worst thing. And then I would say it just to see subconsciously, I didn't know I was doing any of this, obviously, just to see if they, if that would tip them over the edge or not. If that, if I was truly safe, if they were going to retaliate, if they were going to make me feel uh, lesser than, or um, like I needed to go into fight or flight after that. So what you do with the kid is you don't say anything about it. You bring him chips, you bring him water because all he's trying to do is feel safe. And he's like, the threatening language, like we, we harp so much on like the language of it all. And it's like, that's just, it's just not important. It's just because that's not what's really the issue is. The issue isn't that your child has a bad mouth or like wants to be hateful and mean. The real issue at hand is that your child's nervous system is activated or is looking to either be activated or to feel safe. And so you need to prioritize safety, 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 because then once that child feels safe and it sees all of that, again, just like the winning thing, consequently going to go out into the world and it window of tolerance is way wider now because it's felt so safe at home. It's been so safe that whole time. So there's a really good Instagram account called at Peace Parents who talks all about it. And she gives yeah. so many, she has a PDA kid and she's just incredible about it all. And she goes over how counterintuitive it is and how, successful it also is it sounds like the misdiagnosis of uh when they say the kid has oppositional uh defiance disorder it sounds like that sort of misdiagnosis a bit it is very much so misdiagnosed as that a lot because in the united states we don't diagnose pda so they um i don't know do they diagnose odd in the united states i don't even know they do but they do it uh, largely, I, I don't know if the, Allison's in school for this, but I think it's largely diagnosed 
overdiagnosed in uh, children who are people of color, right? Um, like black children oh. or they do. Yeah, because it's I think it's overdiagnosed in like uh, particularly like black girls because there's an expectation of like just sit down and behave, which is kind of this interesting thing I've heard a lot from. There's this pushback of uh, of neurodivergent people saying we don't want to fit into neurotypical society. Why shouldn't society accommodate or build, you know, a way to make us feel safe in certain places? And that's particularly hard to do in schools, especially like elementary and middle schools. So that's why they give this like diagnosis, I think, because the kid is just like screaming out for help. And everyone's just like, no, sit down, sit down for long hours of the day. Don't move. Don't talk. Oh my God. You know, but like it doesn't work for everyone. You telling a child with PDA that is activating exactly. their nervous system. They literally are in fight or flight. Them acting out is because they don't have control over that. Like their brain literally is doing that autumn involuntary. Yeah. Like I remember being a kid and my ex stepdad, we had burgers for dinner and I ate like half of it. And then he was like, finish it. And I was like, I can't. Uh, and he was like, no, I'm going to finish it. And I was like, and I was an angel child. I was the most passive child you could have ever imagined. That's another PDA symptom is like being passive at, in early ages. Because uh, a lot of mine is internalized. That's the other thing with PDA is you have externalized and internalized. So you have externalized, don't touch the electric fence, I'm touching it, bing. Or you have internalized as in, I am demand avoidance, my own needs, as in I'm accidentally pooping in the bathtub because I've been holding my poop for so long I didn't even realize it. I'm so sorry, but can can you give a, a broad explanation of, of PDA? Because I feel like we've been talking around it, but I'd love to just get a, a, a better sense of what. Yeah, I'm going to not use my own words. OK, <laughs> well, I'm just going to Google <laughs> and see which one actually hits. For you. What, yeah, this one says pathological demand avoidance is a condition associated with autism spectrum disorder. It is a rare behavioral phenotype of ASD that is characterized by an overwhelming or obsessional need to resist or avoid demands, which can often lead to sensory overwhelm, causing meltdowns and violent outbursts. So PDA also looks a lot like an antisocial personality disorder, um, mm. sociopath. It's wild. So I thought a lot of people were sociopaths in my family. And then I um, realized, oh, my God, they all have PDA. <laughs> how do you find out, oh, this is like a nervous system thing? You know, like, how do you parse that out? For me personally, like my own experience is just reflecting back on when I was traumatized by people and when I like my memories of my childhood, like a lot of the memories I have are like bad memories, like of like I was scared or like traumatic uh, events. And looking back on them and thinking about why was that person yelling at me? Why was I in trouble? What was going on? And realizing that that person felt out of control and it was, oh, it's all anxiety based too with PDA. It's anxiety. The reason I'm avoiding the demands is anxiety. For example, before this call, I didn't start getting ready until 1030. And why? I woke up at eight. Why? Because I have PDA, because I just avoid it, because I have anxiety. Like it's all irrational. And I'm so aware it's irrational and I can't help it. It doesn't, it doesn't change it. It's very frustrating. And it's like a constant thing of like, oh my, like procrastinating, except for it's not just procrastinating. It's like everything. And it's all because of the anxiety of it. And the anxiety of it is because my brain feels threatened by external control. And I, I can't do anything about it. 
I can, what I can do about it is I can grow my window of tolerance. Like that's the point where I'm at now is like PDA in adults isn't research, isn't as researched, isn't as talked about. The PDA adults, we all like feel similarly. Um, I haven't even met that many and Mm -hmm. they're all in the UK and Australia, but there's not a lot of research on it. It's a lot of focus on the kids. So there's not a lot of people who know how to help me, who know what to do, who know uh, like what to do. Like there's not a PDA specialist therapist, like a PDA um, knowledgeable therapist and stuff, or like someone who knows what to do within adults. It's just not research. It's not going to be for like, I give it 10 years before it's really, really talked about, like till people know more and more about it. Like this is an exciting place to be because this is a very real thing. And like, Uh, anyone who ever tried to question it, like the people who have experienced it, it's like, oh, there's not a doubt in my mind. There's no question. I can prove it to you every second of the day. I can literally play the bachelor for you and I can show you every second of my behavior being PDA. It's incredible. But as far as what I do, it's honestly just researching so much about my brain to know what I need. Like if I'm feeling a type of way, I'm like, what's going on? What's going on? Stop, zoom out, zoom out and trying to figure out what factors they are. And a lot of the time, I still am having like these panic attack half meltdowns on my support on the people who are closest to me because they're the only people I feel safe enough to show that true side of me too. Cause I'm internalizing mm-hmm. all of it all the time and masking it to everyone else. So they have to know that it, this is not a behavioral thing. This is not a me being mean and hateful at my core. This is me having a panic attack. Mm-hmm. This is me desperately trying to feel safe. So if I'm freaking out and I'm blaming you and I'm like, why didn't you do this? Like you should have blah, blah, blah. And I'm doing all this. All you have to do is just be like, you're so right. (laughs) And I would literally go from 100 to zero. I would go from 100 to zero because not only did you take the threat response away of like me, clearly I'm trying, I'm leveling with you. I don't feel equal or balanced. I'm feeling lower than. So I'm trying, I'm throwing things out here trying to get back up. And so if you take away, if you make a fart sound, so not only have you taken away the severity of the situation, you've told me that I haven't gone too far to where you're not even going to like laugh with me anymore. Like I didn't take it too far. And I think that that had something to do like with the extent of like, that and um trauma like I don't know there I'm not I don't know everything as far as like the differences in where the PTSD and the PDA like I don't know mm-hmm. I think we talk a lot on this show about you know diagnosis can be really helpful and there's obviously reasons we have it but a lot of times it's really just understanding your own symptoms and how they manifest and and dealing with them symptom by symptom instead of like having to fit perfectly onto the umbrella of a specific diagnosis. Yeah, Everyone's care. Like, I feel like whenever you're born, you should have a full blown blueprint of your mind. So you know exactly <laughs> what your like, what your strengths are, how you're going to like, what your brain is going to be doing so you can work with it. <laughs> and you know what I'm saying? Because I've been working against mine and being forced to work against mine and punished to work if I don't work against it for so long. And it was like, wow, well, how unnecessary was that? I just started living my life. I'm 27 and mm-hmm. I just now started living my life. Like to mm-hmm. my bullet, like to, my life. I was living mm-hmm. like the world's life. I was being who they like the world needed me to be. Mm-hmm. Well, if you would like to learn more about how your brain works, I would like to introduce you to a game called Hypotheticals. <laughs> would you like to play a game show? <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, 
It's incredibly revealing about people. Um, really so <laughs> insightful. Um, <laughs> basically, it's better. It's better than the frog test. Yeah. <laughs> uh, basically, <laughs> I'm going to give you a Gabby a series of hypothetical situations. You could ask any clarifying questions you might have, and then you tell me what you would do in that situation. Okay. Does that sound okay? okay? Yeah. All right. Our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? Your partner of three years is on vacation with some college friends in Miami. They're at a club when they spot someone who looks just like you. They can't believe it. So they go over to the person and start explaining that they look just like their partner. And this person misinterprets this as a come on and pretends to be you as a sexy goof. And before long, they are making out. (laughs) Would you forgive this cheater? (laughs) Probably. I mean... If there was someone that looked just like me, I'd be like, where is she? <laughs> I would be so fascinated. Bring her home. Yeah. Seriously, I'm down. I'm down. <laughs> I think, yeah, because I'm like, what? who is this person? Are, and honestly, in terms of my family, there might be a long lost sibling. We don't know. That's true. So I would like to know, well, I do DNA test, find out if they're my sibling. And then if they're not, then maybe we can hook up. I don't know. It's like, why not? Like hook up with someone that looks like me? Of course. It's kind of a queer rite of passage, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So both of you would stay with the cheater and try to find this person in Miami. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That feels right. Good answers. Miami's close to my family. Honestly, maybe this is my sibling. (laughs) Okay, our next game. Are you a terrible parent? Your child, 15, has a habit of coming home after their 11 p.m. curfew. Mm. Each time, they blame the traffic. So you start to go pick them up from wherever they are at 1045 and honk loudly three times so they know it's time to go. Their friends start calling them three honk. And in order to avoid the embarrassment, they stop going out. Are you a terrible parent? Three honk? Yeah, that becomes their nickname. There's no way that a milf like me is a terrible parent. (laughs) I would be a milf. Oh, well, you know what's funny is that three honk kind of sounds like sexy in a way. Like it's (laughs) like, (laughs) yeah, I don't think they should be embarrassed of that. I think they should take any nickname you get. I think you should work with it. And I think you should like, but I'd said this before in another hypothetical. By the time you're in high school, it should be like they don't even remember or you're in college. They don't even remember what the original origin of the nickname is. You just like go out and like meet girls and they're like, this is my buddy three honk. And you're like, what's up? And that's it. Literally, it's incredible. Three honk? In this scenario, though, they've stopped going out because they are embarrassed. So does that make you a bad parent? Yes, but if I'm a good parent, I then tell them that they just got to, like, capitalize on this name. Put it on the back of a jersey. Get, like, you know, make it sort of their thing. I'd say, you know what? You need to stay in the house anyway. There ain't nothing good out there. (laughs) There ain't nothing good at the club. You don't need to go out. No one's brought up the fact how rude it is to honk loudly at 1045 at night. I would never think that was rude. I would never even think about it. (laughs) That's the problem. I would never even think about it. Wow. 
<laughs> and then if anyone yells at you, you'd be like, I'm a milf. And then just I drive mean, away. You'd want to fuck. Okay. You would. <laughs> I used to, whenever I used to like video game and I'd be on the headsets, I used to play games with my brother. We'd play Fortnite, whatever. I used to be on there. And anytime someone would like bully the shit out of me, I'd be like, you know what? I'm so hot. You don't even know. Okay. You don't even know. You would want to date me. <laughs> so you're kind of screwing up your own life right now like that was the only thing i always knew i was like that's the only thing only consistent thing that we've got going for us (laughs) hang on to that one i also love the idea that a kid would be happy that their mother was a milf (laughs) (laughs) they would hate it huh i had a sister who was very hot and it was a struggle i did too wow see i was always just the only woman around only girl Someone one time said to me, like, they met my sister and they were like, oh, she's you, but hot. And I was like, I have to go. Oh, my God. That would be so. Oh, oh. I know. <laughs> Considering that I am incredibly hot, it's very weird. It's so funny. My, my younger cousins are like older now. They're like 18. 19, I don't know how old they are, but they are over the age of 18. And I, they're, they got like so gorgeous and stuff. And I was like, um, excuse me, I'm the hot one in the family. Um, excuse me. Dial it back. <laughs> Tone it down, girl. And they're like so tall too. I'm like, okay, okay. Everyone settle down. <laughs> okay, our final game. Would you forgive this liar? You are at a coworker's party when you remark that the painting they have on their wall is beautiful. They reply, thank you. I made it. This blows you away. And you spend the rest of the night singing their praises and showing everyone the painting. You even give them the original nickname, the painter. A few months later, you ask them to commission a painting of your dog for you. And they get all excited and agree. But when they give it to you, you notice there is a signature on the back that isn't their name. Later that night, you Google image search the signature and discover (laughs) it is a popular Etsy artist signature. (gasps) When you confront them and ask if they paid an artist from Etsy to do the commission, they admit that they were joking when they said they painted the painting, but you took it seriously. And they realized that they loved being perceived as an artist, so they kept up the facade. I hate this. Would you forgive this liar? Yes. No, I hate this. Yes, I would. (laughs) I hate this. I mean, here's the thing. I would understand where they were coming from. Like, honestly, at that point, I have become this liar's mortal worst nightmare. Like, literally, I am investigating. They're like, dude, just believe what I said and shut the fuck up. Like, what's your problem? <laughs> so, like, at this point, I've probably caused them so much distress that I'm probably like, my bad, bro. Like, I get it. You you fucked up. Okay. Probably not going to, like, I mean, I'm always going to remember that. That's now a defining character trait. Like, they're a liar. But um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to be angry with them or whatever. That's that's the compassion that you extend to other people now. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm like this poor Etsy artist. People are just passing her shit off as their own. Like, what if I wanted to buy another painting and I bought it from are they so they're just wait a minute. How much does this person charge? The name you got the signature. You know where it came from, though. You got the signature, you start you researched it. Now, now it's your duty. To pass on the to buy from that artist. Yeah. Now not only buy from her, you got a promoter. You gotta do it all on your story, on your feed. <laughs> That's my grand apology. That's justice. <laughs> I write a notes app apology. I post it. I'm like, I'm so sorry. I believed this person. <laughs> <laughs> 
Does it make a difference for you, Gabby, that they weren't intentionally lying, but they got caught up in a lie? No. Here's the thing that I'm <laughs> I'm upset about. If if the Etsy artist charges like 20 bucks, but then the person lying charges me $40 and like is making a profit, then I have a problem. They actually took a hit. They they it cost them money. Yeah, it cost them money because they've said they give you a friend discount, so they only charged you a hundred dollars. But the Etsy artists, it's a business, so they charge one fifty. Okay, then I don't feel as bad. Like I thought that they were sort of pro- doing like a scam market, which I honestly love scams and I do like art scams. <sighs> mm-hmm. But I just feel bad because Etsy is like an independent platform. So like, who knows? This could be like some poor woman in like another, you know, in some rural Canadian city yeah. who like needs the money. So, okay, I, I I would forgive them. But like Demi said, I would keep it in my mind as a defining characteristic of this person. And also, uh, it's like, I do have a, a level of concern. I think I might ponder on this like I am right now. <laughs> they really had to go through with the second lie, with the buying me the painting. Like, <laughs> that, that's a lot. And like, how can we channel that? How we harness all that energy you just, you did there to create this whole fucking facade? And what can we do with it? You want to monetize it? Yeah, it's a that's skill. a skill. <laughs> In some way, I don't know what the skill's called, but that's it. <laughs> It's intriguing. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you so, so much for coming on and sharing your story with us. Where can people find out more about everything you're doing and your new podcast? Yes. um, Listen to my new podcast, Demi Goddess. You can listen to it wherever you listen to your podcast or on uh, YouTube. On YouTube, we have the video and it's so fun and cute. My Instagram, I just bit my tongue. My Instagram is at Demi <laughs> underscore not underscore Lovato. Um, my TikTok is at Demlia, D-E-M-L-I-A. Yeah, get on my like to know it shop and click on my links if you ever need anything from Target or Amazon because I can make like 17 cents off of your order. So please. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. This was so fun. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about picking our podcast guests. It's more juicy than it sounds. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for Topics. XXXXX, baby. Baby. This week's topic is about our guest selection for this show. And I think, I think over time, you know, we always try to vet our guests and we say no to a lot of people who actually try to be on the show and we try to be really thoughtful about who we have on the show. But I have found and I'm sure you have found, Gabby, that then during the interviews themselves, sometimes mm-hmm. the guests say things where I don't necessarily agree with them or I'm mm-hmm. worried it will be harmful in some way. And, you know, we're still navigating what it means to be interviewers. Mm-hmm. And so... I, I guess I wanted to just like talk to you about how we want to like move forward in the moment with guests and then also like our guest selection and then sure. like what we do if an interview goes a certain way that that we maybe didn't want it to and or like we didn't have in the moment the ability to push back as much as looking back we wish that we had. Yeah, I mean, part of me is like we 
have people on because I'm open to, I'm open to dissenting opinions. Like I'm open to when someone on the show says something I don't necessarily agree with, I'm open to hearing it. Like I'm I in my head I imagine that there's somebody out there listening to our podcast who's like, "Yes, I think about this a lot." And it's like not something that I've thought about. So I don't I don't perceive myself as like an expert. But I think there is a world in which I go or you go, "Say more about that." Or like if we go, "Well, you know, that's interesting because I've always believed this." And if if like we have a gut instinct that something feels incorrect or feels like, you know, not helpful or feels outdated or something like that. So, you know, it's interesting, right? Like one episode that we got some pushback on was with um, the about narcissistic personality disorder, which Demi brings up a bit in this in this episode. And there's a lot of dissenting opinions. Some people, uh, you know, I I'm on a lot of forums for dealing with family members who are narcissists. And, you know, there people are have no compassion. Like, and I read it, you know, because I it's some of it's helpful. But those people are like, fuck narcissists, fuck, you know, these people with personality disorders, they have no whatever. And I'm I'm like, you know, I read it because it's helpful. But I don't think in my heart, I don't know that the way that it's handled is with stigma is like helpful. So, you know, it's interesting when we had that person on, I was like, I didn't know enough to be like, oh, you know what? That might not like I was like, oh, like learning about it, too. So sometimes it's great that we have listeners who write in and say, hey, actually, you didn't think of this thing because you and I don't know everything. Mm -hmm. We don't know. Sometimes maybe something feels icky, but we don't know exactly why. And we don't know exactly how to push back because we don't we don't know why it's bumping for us in that moment or we don't realize that it's not correct until someone writes in and tells us because we're only hearing one person's point of view. So we don't know. For the stuff that I do know, I think you and I do a pretty good job of of pushing back. I think we could maybe do more, but I think we vet really well. I think largely when it happens, it's stuff that we didn't even know about. Yes. And I think I think, yeah, that's definitely it. And I also think that we maybe need to include like a disclaimer that like the thoughts of our guests do not represent our thoughts. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think when we know it's bad, we should we do have a responsibility to push back. Like, I don't think that absolves us from from pushing back. But I, you know, I think as podcast hosts, as we sort of talked about on the show, like just by giving someone the platform to be on this show, it inherently sort of validates their beliefs or their stance in a way, because we are giving them airtime and we are like allowing them on the show. And so I think sometimes or maybe in every single episode, just like making taking the time to be like, we invited this person on because we are interested in what they have to say, but that doesn't mean it is a blanket approval of everything that they say. And honestly, a lot of things are very nuanced and we Mm -hmm. might not agree with what they're saying. And, uh, and if you are someone who knows more about the topic than we do, it is very possible that what they're saying isn't factually correct or the only way to look at things. It could be correct, but it just could be different, uh, you know, different opinions. I'm thinking of the person who wrote in about our episode with the beekeeper where they wrote in and they were like, her not using pesticides is actually bad. And they were like, I'm a bee expert. And I'm like, right. So she's a bee expert and you're a bee expert and you have different opinions. Like, (laughs) so it's kind of interesting on Bad With Money I'll have people on who I don't necessarily agree with, but the way that Bad With Money is structured is that I do an intro to the interview where Mm -hmm. I research and do a long intro that I write every week. 
And then I do an outro for the interview where I reflect on what I heard in the interview. So with Bad With Money, if I have someone on that I don't agree with, I'm given the space at the top and at the bottom to be like, I researched after this interview and it actually is this and it says this, you know. So I'm given space to be like, I had this NFT artist on and I'm given space to be like, yeah, I liked a lot of what she said, but a lot of what she said, I wasn't like so sold on. And sometimes guests are like, hey, you didn't say that in the moment, but you're saying it in the, you know, intro and outro. I have that space there and we don't really have that here. Right. And so maybe that's something we need to add in. Like maybe we need to allow for that a bit more than we have been on this show. In the ratings, like even just like giving our thoughts more on if if anything bumped for us. I think so. Yeah. It's so uncomfortable, right? Because there's us as as public facing people who think a lot about what we put out into the world and get to like have a lot of control over like our individual social medias, our individual writings, all these things. But in the moment of interviewing somebody, at least for me, just like me as a person talking to this person I don't know and they're being it over Zoom and delays and not wanting to interrupt somebody, like all that stuff comes up, making it harder for me to feel comfortable to push back. And so I'm recognizing that that is a strength that I'm lacking or need to nurture as an interviewer. And I'm realizing that it is like a weakness that I have and Mm -hmm. something that I, I want to get better at. Yeah, I think I will also try to do a better job. That's my promise to you, the listener. I will also try to do a better job of pushing back on stuff that in the moment hits me as wrong or bumps for me or feels icky. You know, it's very easy for us to not have racist, to not have transphobes, to not have homophobes, right? That's very clear cut. But in the moment, there could be things that, you know, I'm not, we're not going to have someone on who writes a book like, fuck trans people. But like, we might have someone on who says something very gender binary. And that's like, oh, we didn't expect that. So we have to like push back, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think like we have to be better at in the moment, if we're not expecting it, saying something. Yeah. Let me tell you, often people like that. Like sometimes I'll be like, hey, you didn't really mean to say it that way because it's actually kind of like racist. And then people will be like, oh, I didn't mean to. Like we had someone on the Bad With Money podcast to talk about cancer and they used the word lame in their interview. And then afterwards I was like, do you want me to keep that? And they were like, actually, no, I was thinking it too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. I think also the editing process sometimes people say things where I'm like, I feel like we should cut this. But then it's like the journalistic mindset of like, well, is that then not showing what they actually, their point of view? You know, it's so tricky being being in control of the edit over someone else. Do we want to make them look better than they did? How do we, is that co-signing? Is that saving their face to the detriment of our listeners? You know? Well, I don't do it to save their face. I do it so it doesn't cause harm in our listeners. Right. Because I don't want it to upset and and hurt our listeners. But then I'm like, but is then that misrepresenting this person? So it's very confusing and I don't have the right answer. Yeah. And there's, you know, I think to to shuffle around the elephant, we got a lot of feedback about the uh, episode with Dr. Efrat Lamandre, um, where I did push back on some of the fat phobia and a little bit of the ableism. And I but like and some people were like, good job. And other people were like, not enough. Mm-hmm. And I hear that. And, you know, that's something interesting where it's kind of like a lesson in intersectionality, right? Where 
this is a woman of color who's a lesbian. So you have them on as a doctor thinking one way, and then they actually express like some fat phobia and ableism. And you're like, wow, didn't see that coming. Should have, but didn't, you know, kind of expected from a certain group and not from another group. So very interesting. And also her being like, I'm a capitalist, which again, from a woman of color, queer person is like, whoa, but you know what? It shouldn't be. It's naive to think that. And I had a really hard time with that interview in particular because a lot of what she was saying about the medical field and the medical profession, you know, she's saying it was such a sense of authority and obviously has worked in this industry for so long. But I was like, is this true? <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? It is hard. <laughs> I think a lot of it is true to her. And I think it highlighted, unintentionally highlighted problems within the medical community where one, there's compassion fatigue. So someone who's been working in it for that long doesn't have the level of compassion for patients and um, their diverse issues as much as they should or much or as much as a, a new doctor might. And two, the, it shows the way the medical community thinks about, you know, thinks about patients, thinks about the the people that they're seeing, which is kind, which like when it's expressed in that way with such authority, when you parse out what the words are, they're actually kind of ugly. Yeah. And just stuff about like the right way to have the system with the more primary care and the I don't know, like I was like, oh, this is interesting. But like, I, yeah, like I think it is really important for us to highlight that things are opinions and like some things are facts, but some things are opinions and us doing a better job of like making that clear and that we're not inherently co-signing on yeah. all opinions expressed on this show. We could even try to say, I have a different opinion on this. Like if someone's talking with such authority Maybe even just using the sentence, like instead of, you know, being like they're wrong or something, just saying to them in the moment, like, that's interesting. I have a different opinion about this. Or even like, that's interesting. Are there other people in your field who have different opinions about this? Yes. Just to sort of like allow for that possibility. That's a good template. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, good luck to us. Um <laughs> <laughs> And also, I want to say thank you so much to everyone who writes in with dissenting opinions here and on Bad With Money. We just had an episode about medical tourism and someone wrote in and was like, I live in Mexico and I don't want medical tourists here. And that is a great opinion that I will then read on the show. And I I want you guys to know that at least on JBU, Allison is reading the emails. Not all of them. I'm trying. But, uh, you know, I, it is I, we do change our thoughts about this show all the time based on your feedback. Yes. So thank you so much. And we really appreciate that. And we think that it has made it a much better show and a show yes. we can be more proud of. So we're so appreciative. Yes. Melissa, you want to come on in and give it an old rating? Good job, people. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I think that this was a great all around episode. And I would like to rate it 30 out of 22 constructive feedbacks. Love it. I will give it 15 out of 14 MILFs. Mm. <laughs> and I will give it 72 out of 51 advocating for yourself until you get the right diagnosis. <laughs> Thank you to Demi Burnett for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa Diamond Montz. Edited by Coco Lorenz. Executive produced by Brett Bohm, Joe Cilio, Alex Ramsey, and Tracy Soren. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. 
And check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash forever dog team or on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash just between us show. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also on Instagram, at Allison Raskin, at Gabby Road, and at She Is Not Melissa. Also, get Allison's book, Overthinking About You, and also you can get an ebook and audiobook from me called Stimulus Wreck. Please, and if you uh, read Allison's book, leave it a Goodreads or Amazon review. I did, and you should too. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Bye. Forever. <laughs> <laughs>